Welcome to Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité and all that. A podcast about current affairs, foreign policy, politics and governments behaving badly. Episode 3, The Collapse of Governing Norms With the exception of the United Kingdom, every democracy in the world has a written constitution. However, the written constitution cannot cover everything. Unwritten governing norms on how people should behave are critical for helping government function. And when these norms start getting abused, it's often a slide to the bottom. Now, sometimes these norms apply to the separation of powers between institutions. For example, in the United States, for the first 150 years of the Republic, presidents typically did not get involved in congressional elections. And each party had a lot of local autonomy. And as a result, the parties were big white tents, which had both the Republicans and the Democrats had conservative and liberal factions. Now, this had positive effects in that you often got bipartisan legislation together. It is not as toxic as it is today. On the flip side, when presidents wanted to get their agenda through, it was very hard sometimes to get things done. And as the 20th century began, as the presidencies started becoming more assertive, and as the United States started becoming a world power, this became critical. From Teddy Roosevelt to Woodrow Wilson, and then culminating with FDR, American presidents had a domestic platform that they wanted enacted. And many were often irritated by opposition in their own party. This started a process where presidents gradually started getting involved in local elections to get rid of troublesome congressmen to what we have today, where it is expected that most congressmen will generally align with the president of their party. Failure to do so can lead to a primary challenge. The result at some level has been increased power to the presidency at the expense of Congress. And some of this was also as a result of World War I, World War II, and the Cold War, where the president was expected to make quick decisions without having to run to Congress for every single thing. And this makes the United States like other democracies. But there's a risk because presidential democracies are already inherently more unstable than parliamentary democracies because of divided government. And partisanship can become a big issue. But what I want to focus on today is something beyond this. This, at some level, is a competition between different parts of government and how do you get things done. But there are other basic norms on how to behave. Like, if the Constitution allows you to do certain things, that doesn't mean you should do it. And an example of this came in the first decade of the century in Texas. Now, the Constitution requires a census every decade, followed by reapportionment of congressional and state legislature seats. And the general norm is after the census is done, the f- once, it is, once the census data is out, the state legislatures will draw district lines. There's nothing that says that the next legislature cannot redraw district lines. But it was generally accepted that once those lines were drawn, that was what you had for the next decade. And there comes Tom DeLay, who was the 
majority whip in the U.S. House and a very prominent congressman in Texas. Because after the 2000 census results in Texas came out, the Democrats actually held one of the houses of the state legislature, and you actually had a, a congressional district map that was not heavily gerrymandered. This was something Tom DeLay could not stand for. So when in the next election cycle, the Republicans took back the state house, he decided to go ahead and redraw district lines. And again, this is something that was technically allowed. It just wasn't done. Now, in the short run, this benefited him and Texas was already somewhat a Republican state and the net loss of seats was not that high. And thankfully, so far, nobody has gone ahead and repeated this fiasco. But that's a dangerous sign where you have a political party that cares about power and doesn't care about how it holds on to it. And in the last decade, you have seen this get worse. One of the worst offenders in this is the North Carolina GOP. After the incumbent Republican governor lost re-election in 2016, the state legislature, which is controlled by the Republicans, decided in lame duck session, hey, let's, since we have a new Democratic governor coming, let's just take away some of his powers. Now, again, this is, this was possibly technically allowed by the state constitution, but this is banana republic stuff. You just lost the election and now you're trying to restrict the power of the guy who's holding the constitutional office he was elected to. Luckily, North Carolina, the state courts blocked this. But this was a blueprint that was followed by other Republican parties in Wisconsin and in Michigan after they lost the gov governor's races after the 2018 elections. More recently in North Carolina, a more flagrant abuse, again, the North Carolina G GOP is known for this, came on 9-11. Democratic governor had vetoed the budget passed by the state legislature. The Republicans did not have enough votes to override the veto. And along comes 9-11. Many people in the legislature want to attend 9-11 commemoration services. And the Republican majority leader assured the Democrats that no major legislation would be brought up while they were away. And guess what happens? The moment they are gone, they realize, hey, we have a majority. And they go ahead and repeal the veto. Now, this is not the first time some this sort of maneuver has been done and it is not unique in some ways to North Carolina, but again, this is really crazy stuff. Something like this basically eviscerates the trust in the other side. It's a slide to the bottom. Now, why would the Democrats in North Carolina ever trust the Republicans on anything they say? One of the other problems in the United States obviously has been gerrymandering. And our gerrymandering has pretty much always existed since the Republic came into being. But what has happened now in the last two decades is the amount of data and voting data available is so high that it's become an art form of how to pack people into districts and you get ridiculous results where one party needs to win 60% of the popular vote to actually get a bare majority in the state legislature. This is no way for democracies to function and it is a very, very dangerous path that the United States is going down. Now, some of this evisceration of norms is not restricted to the United States. I will not get into the world's largest democracy, India, in this particular episode. I think that probably deserves an episode by itself. But in India, sadly, ever since independence, abuse of constitutional provisions has taken place and every pretty much every government has done it. 
But more spectacularly recently was the United Kingdom, where again, as one of the oldest parliaments in the world, you expect certain behavior from the British Parliament. The British are in the middle of their own fiasco of Brexit, and you just got a new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. Parliament is not keen on his preferred no-deal Brexit. And since he doesn't have a majority in Parliament, Boris came up with this brilliant idea of not having to deal with Parliament at all. Now, custom in the United Kingdom says that Parliament is prorogued for a week before the Queen's speech. The Queen appears in Parliament and reads out a speech which is basically written by the government. And for a week before that, Parliament is prorogued. Boris came up with the brilliant idea to extend this to five weeks. And there's no reason for this other than the fact that Boris Johnson no longer commands a majority in Parliament and Parliament is passing all these bills that make it very, very uncomfortable for him. And so he just didn't want to deal with Parliament. And again, this is a parliamentary democracy and you have the Prime Minister basically shutting down Parliament. Luckily for the United Kingdom, they now have a Supreme Court and this is a fairly recent creation. And the Supreme Court stepped in and unanimously slapped down Boris Johnson and Parliament was brought back into session. But Boris is not done. He no longer has a majority in Parliament and it's only a matter of time when he will lose a confidence vote before Parliament. And custom says a Prime Minister who loses a confidence vote has to tender his resignation. Again, Britain does not have a written constitution, but that is just custom. Now, Boris Johnson and his acolytes are floating the idea that he will he will not resign in such a scenario and he will force the Queen to fire him. The monarch dismissing a prime minister is something that has not happened since the 1830s. And the crown in the last 160 years has generally held itself out of open politics. And this is, again, not a good idea. But when politicians are desperate to hold on to power, they and their supporters increasingly don't care. So I wanted to bring up a couple of historical examples of what happens when governing norms are eviscerated. And now history does not always repeat itself. Well, Karl Marx said it repeats itself as a farce and sometimes it does. But history can often serve as a guide of how things can go horribly wrong when you go past a certain course of action. Now, obviously, this is not a guarantee. Each circumstance is different, but these are good illustrative guides of what can happen. So since I just brought up Boris Johnson, let's start with an example from the United Kingdom. At the beginning of the 20th century, the United Kingdom controlled the largest empire the world had ever seen. The Industrial Revolution had made Britain fabulously wealthy. The empire was basically a giant scheme to suck money away from the colonies into Britain. So a lot of people had got very rich. Of course, since trickle-down economics is basically a scam, none of this wealth was actually trickling down to the great unwashed. The life of a majority of people in the country was terrible. Workers worked long hours, they had no benefits, they had no health care, there was no minimum wage, children were forced to work. It's very similar to what happened in the United States in the Gilded Age. One of the conceits of capitalism is it helps a country become prosperous. But what they don't tell you is without some sort of government regulation, that money does not really trickle down to a vast majority of people. It's very easy to end up with an oligarchy. So in 1909, the Liberal Party, which controlled Parliament, introduced a new budget, which was the pet project of the Chancellor and later Prime Minister David Lloyd George. It was the so-called People's Budget. It was a proposal that introduced a number of taxes on the income and lands of 
Britain's wealthy to fund a bunch of social welfare programs so that the wealth that Britain was generating could actually be spread among the public. Now, since the Liberals had a huge majority in the Commons, it passed through the House of Commons. The other House of Parliament in the United Kingdom is the House of Lords, which until Tony Blair's reform consisted of hereditary peers who served for life. At this point, the House of Lords still held considerable power. It had the power to block legislation, and famously, it had blocked the Irish Home Rule Bill in the 1880s and the 1890s, which ended the career of Prime Minister Gladstone. But for the previous 200 years, the House of Lords had amended money bills, but it had never actually rejected them. And so that had essentially become a governing norm, that the House of Lords would not reject a money bill. The former Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party, Arthur Balfour, instructed his party in the House of Lords, where the Conservatives naturally had a huge majority, to reject the budget. Now, even though King Edward VII tried to convince the Conservatives not to go down this path, the House of Lords went ahead and rejected the budget. The problem for the House of Lords is their position had one fatal weakness. There is theoretically no restriction on how many members the House of Lords could have. So if the Liberal Party could convince the King to appoint new peers, the Conservatives would no longer have a majority. Now, this is obviously a drastic change. It was last done in the passage of the Great Reform Act, which expanded suffrage and got rid of the rotten boroughs in the 1830s. But this is a really major change, and the king obviously was a little hesitant to do this. But this was what the liberal government asked the king to do. So the compromise the king came up with was if the liberals won two elections on this issue, he would go ahead and appoint the lords needed to give them a majority. So election was called, but at this point, the country is heavily divided. And the liberals were able to form the government, but they no longer had a majority of their own. And they formed a government with the help of Irish nationalists. This is where Balfour's little scheme ended up backfiring on him. Because as a condition of support, the Irish nationalists demanded that the liberals pass a Parliament Reform Act that would strip the ability of the lords to to reject legislation, which means that Irish Home Rule can pass, which is something the Conservatives have been blocking now for decades. So it took another round of elections, and at this point the Liberals had won, and King Edward VII had died, and the new King George V became king with this crisis looming over his head. And having formed another government, the King basically agreed that he would appoint enough peers to change this. And at this point, Arthur Balfour backed down. He allowed the budget to be passed through the House of Lords. This was followed up by the Parliament Act of 1911. And as a result, the House of Lords no longer has the power to veto any legislation. It could delay it, but it could not block it. And then Parliament went ahead and passed Irish Home Rule. The Irish Home Rule tragically never went into effect for two reasons. One, the six counties of Ulster threatened to revolt. And then World War I started. And it was put on hold for the duration of the war, and then the Easter Rising happened, and that's another tragic story. But what did Arthur Balfour, in the end, get out of his intransigence? The House of Lords lost their veto. Now, practically, the veto would probably have been taken out on another fight in the future, but by so explicitly going against governing norms, they lost it much sooner than they would have. 
And this House of Lords veto bears a lot of similarity to what we deal now with the filibuster, where it was once intended to be used sparingly. Increasingly, the use has been rising until it reached ridiculous levels during the Obama presidency when the Republicans filibustered everything, legislation, judicial appointments, even cabinet appointments. And the last two were egregious because they would just delay, delay, delay. And two years later, when they finally allowed a vote, these people are being confirmed by like 90% of the Senate. So the only reason things were being filibustered were to aggravate the Obama administration. And so what happened? The Democrats finally got fed up and got rid of the filibuster for appointments. The Republicans have now got rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court appointments. And it's only a matter of time before the filibuster is gone. Now, elections should have consequences, but the filibuster has been around for a while and it's been intended as a protection against absolute majority rule. But the abuse has been so egregious that it's only a matter of time before the filibuster is gone. Now, the second example I want to bring up is from the Roman Republic. This one actually, I think, does have a bearing on a more tragic case of what happens when governing norms are ignored and things rapidly spiral out of control. So by the middle of the second century BC, Rome was the power in the Mediterranean. Rome had defeated Carthage. It had annexed the kingdom of Macedonia. They've defeated Antiochus the Great of the Seleucid Empire. And Rome reigned supreme. Rome had the strongest army in the Mediterranean, and the army consisted of citizen soldiers. As a result of their victory, a lot of wealth and slaves poured into Italy. And again, as I said, trickle-down economics is a bunch of nonsense, because none of this wealth actually benefited the soldiers who made these victories possible. All this wealth basically flowed to the senatorial class. Now, this created a number of problems. A citizen militia, a citizen army worked when... The Romans were fighting in Italy. The soldiers could go on campaign and then get back home to their family farm for planting season and then go back on campaign the next season. It did not place enormous economic strain on the soldiers. And Rome had property qualification before somebody could become a soldier. Now, all of a sudden, the legions were fighting for years in North Africa, in Spain, in Greece, in Asia Minor, which is the landmass of what is now Turkey. And the soldiers are now away from their farms for years on end. And as a result, back home, the families of the soldiers start, gradually started going bankrupt. And the senators swooped in and started gobbling up all these farms. And they got richer and richer and richer. And a lot of citizens got poorer and poorer and poorer. And they flocked into Rome. And this created a vol volatile mix. Now, this was also dangerous for the Roman Republic because all of a sudden now you're losing your citizen-soldier class. You're gradually going to run out of men to staff your army. So a number of reformers came up with an idea. The Roman Republic had a lot of public land which belonged to the Republic as a result of conquest throughout Italy and other places. The idea was that they would divvy up these land and give it to the former soldiers as plots. The other problem they had was there were restrictions on how much of this public land people could own and many senators were well above the legal restriction on this. Well, as usual, the rich moneyed class did not like this. Even though the land was, they were being compensated for the land being taken away, they did not like this at all. So the senatorial reformers turned to the tribune, Tiberius Gracchus. Tiberius Gracchus and his brother Gaius Gracchus 
or the reason why you always see a populist Senator Gracchus in every Roman movie, be it Spartacus or Gladiator. Now, the Roman constitution allowed legislation to be passed through the Senate or the People's Assembly. And as tribune, as one of the ten tribunes, Tiberius Gracchus brought it before the People's Assembly. Of course, the problem here was any one of the ten tribunes could veto such legislation. And even though this was legislation that actually helped the general public, the Senate got one of the tribunes, Marcus Octavius, a distant cousin of the future Emperor Augustus, who was born Octavius. They managed to get one of the tribunes on their side to veto this legislation. And this is where things really start spiraling downhill. Because you have a tribune who is supposed to represent the people exercising a veto on behalf of the moneyed class rather than the people. So after a while, after Tiberius Gracchus failed to convince Marcus Octavius to stop vetoing everything, he came up with a unique solution. He will vote Marcus Octavius out of office. And there are conflicting stories of what happened next. One story says Marcus Octavius was intimidated into not vetoing his removal. Another one says he chose not to do it and was eventually removed from office. Now, here's another norm that's gone out. A tribune had never been voted out of office that way. But you can argue that the Senate left Tiberius Gracchus no choice. So then, with Octavius gone, Gracchus went ahead and passed his legislation and established a land commission to reapportion the land. But of course, the money for this commission to operate comes from the Senate. So the Senate basically did not fund this commission. But then in 133 BC, King Attalus III of Pergamon, a rich kingdom in Western, what is now Western Turkey, died and he left his entire fortune and the whole kingdom to Rome. So Tiberius Gracchus saw his chance and then using his powers of tribune, allocated the entire fortune to fund the new law. Now, this is another place where norms broke down because traditionally the Senate was responsible for managing the treasury. And so you're starting to see a quick slide downhill over here. And many people thought Gracchus overturning the, the tribune's veto was illegal. And under Roman law, you could not be prosecuted while you were in office, but you were fair game once you were out of office. So Tiberius Gracchus decides to break norms again and run for tribune again. So now the atmosphere in Rome is really, really poisonous and many in the Roman senatorial class are making accusations that Tiberius Gracchus is now trying to set himself up as king of Rome. And this ultimately ends in a tragic scene where Tiberius Gracchus was lynched by a bunch of aristocrats headed by the Pontifex Maximus himself. Now, as tribune, Tiberius Gracchus's person was sacrosanct. He was not supposed to be harmed. But by this point, norms had broken down so badly that a tribune of Rome was basically lynched in the streets. But once the dust settled, the upshot of this was the Senate, in the end, had to go ahead and fund this commission anyway, because the public was outraged. The Pontifex Maximus, who led the charge, basically was packed off into exile. But this set like a dangerous precedent. Tiberius Gracchus's brother Gaius would become tribune himself a decade later, and he would also end up being murdered while in office. Eventually, the assassination of Tiberius Gracchus is often considered one of the flashpoints which gradually starts the decline of the Roman Republic. Eventually, a compromise would be found, 
eventually the Romans would transition from a citizen militia to a professional army, which created a problem where gradually the soldiers were not loyal to the Republic, they were loyal to their general, who's the one who got them their money. And a few decades later, this resulted with one of these generals leading his armies into Rome and killing his opponents. And a few decades later, it led to the civil wars between Caesar and Pompey, and eventually the collapse of the Republic and the establishment of the empire. Now, I'm not saying that America is headed down this path. Obviously, this is a more extreme example. But this slide downhill started when the Senate refused to even consider a reasonable piece of legislation to solve a critical problem, and then blocked attempts to get this passed to the People's Assembly, and which led to gradual erosion of norms on both sides until it ended in bloodshed. As the Tiberius Gracchus case shows, and that's an extreme example, I get it, as governing norms get eviscerated, it's close to impossible to put Humpty Dumpty together again. And this is a dangerous time for democracy across the globe. Increasingly, many governments are trying to pack the courts, tinker with the electoral systems, make it harder for their opponents to vote. And the United States is the only presidential democracy that has not had a constitutional breakdown in the last 160 years. And that's basically since the Civil War ended. Chile is the only other one that has lasted that long. And even Chile had a run a 20-year dictatorship starting in the 70s. So democracy in the U.S. is not guaranteed. And we are basically beating the odds, the fact that this presidential system has not broken down. And of course, Donald Trump's presidency doesn't help because the recent revelations we are finding out under law, Act, actions of the federal bureaucracy are supposed to be depoliticized. They're supposed to be insulated from political appointees. Well, Donald Trump doesn't care about any of that, and many of his lackeys have been injecting politics into these decisions. But the next big threat we are going to face is when the Republican majority of the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade. And I think that's just a matter of time. Now again, governing norms were eviscerated here when Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, he refused to even hold hearings on the judge President Obama had nominated. And hypocrites like the former Senator Orrin Hatch had previously indicated that appointing Merrick Garland would be a good thing and that's a judge they could support. But once Merrick Garland was actually nominated, they all refused to even hold hearings. And so they held the Supreme Court seat open for a year and that was probably one of the factors that helped Donald Trump win the presidency because I know at least a few people who, and this is not obviously a statistical sample, but I know a few cases people held their nose and voted for him because of the open Supreme Court seat. But this has problems because increasingly many on the left are tired of bringing knives to a gunfight. And as the other side keeps breaking norm after norm after norm, there is going to be a lot of pressure on the Democrats to strike back. And one of the solutions here is backing the Supreme Court. There's nothing that says the Supreme Court has to have nine members. And actually the size of the Supreme Court has been increased gradually to get to nine. So why not 11? Why not 15? Now, FDR tried this in 1937 and backed down in the event of backlash. But if the Republicans can do whatever they want to staff the federal bench, why should the Democrats sit aside? And at present, they're basically rubber stamping pretty almost everybody Donald Trump puts out, including one of the latest nominees is a 37-year-old attorney who's never even argued a case in court. 
So this is a very dangerous time for American government and the federal judiciary. And there are proposals to de-weaponize the federal judiciary by putting in some sort of time limit so that these are not lifetime appointments. It may have made sense more than two centuries ago to have lifetime appointments when life expectancy was not that long. But now we have had a series of judges holding on to office into the 90s. Some of them because they want a president of their party to appoint their replacement. Some of them because hey, they just don't know what they will do with their life. And there's really no good reason why these appointments need to be lifetime. So a solution would be to have some sort of time limit like almost every other democracy in the world. Nobody in the world really has lifetime judicial appointments. One of the many problems of the American federal judicial system. But unfortunately, this will also require a constitutional amendment. Hopefully, having some sort of time limit would mean that every appointment is not an existential fight. You will get your turn after a certain set period of time and you just appoint a replacement judge. At least, that is a theory. It may work very differently in practice. But the current system is obviously not working. But unfortunately, this will require a constitutional amendment, which are very hard to pass. So I'm not particularly optimistic about this. And so, as a result, the norms of governance continue to wither to our peril. So on that cheerful note, that's it for today. Next time, I will look at a presidential candidate. She's only polling at 2% and she will never be the Democratic Party nominee. And many people wonder why she's a Democrat at all. But I want to focus on her because she represents a particularly irritating conspiratorial wing of politics. So in the next episode, I will take a look at Tulsi Gabbard in The Problem with Tulsi. See you soon. Thank mm-hmm. you.